Last time we left off with Joseph in prison, he was an overseer of the prison, and uh, he interpreted these dreams of these two royal officials. And then uh, in one of them, the interpretation would be released from prison, returned to his former position, and then the other one was going to be hung on a tree. In our passage, we see that God is giving Pharaoh dreams, and we might call them nightmares because they are horrific in their imagery and they are startling to Pharaoh. Joseph is then released from prison to interpret the dreams, and then Joseph is made second in command of all of Egypt. Now, I really love this passage, especially working through Genesis slowly. This passage is, in some ways, a culmination of all of Genesis. Everything that has been kind of uh, hinted at all throughout Genesis, from the garden through to Noah to Abraham, there are... uh, uh, pieces and shards of everything in there culminating in this. This is a high point of Genesis. Um, So it's, it's, it's an incredible passage. I really love it. And I wanted to do a big picture kind of survey real quick. If what was last year or not last year, last time or the previous passage, uh, it was a type. What, what did we, what did, uh, what did we determine the type was with the, previous passage. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. What were some of the elements of that? So the baker, I only remember what I was going to tell you afterwards. I don't exactly remember what we discussed. Right. But it's exactly right. It's a type. on the cross. Right. Right. It's a type of Calvary. He is in the pit. He is in the darkness and he has two criminals next to him. It is a type of Christ at Calvary. It is a type of Christ dying. Um, And that is what we have last time. This time, what might we say is the type that's being conveyed here? Christ ruling over the Gentiles. Yes. What's a name for that? There's actually a Sunday that's a holy day for the beginning of that. Yes, ascension. Yes, this is an ascension narrative. This is the ascension narrative of Genesis. Joseph is a type of Christ. He died last week. This week, he is ascending to the throne. This is uh, the, I think, fundamental thing that we can read. We can read it through the lens of all of Scripture, and that is what God is conveying here. It's a type of a, it's an enthronement of Christ over the Gentiles, over all the world, as Caleb said. Joseph comes out of prison and he ascends an earthly throne. Jesus comes out of the grave and he ascends a heavenly throne. Joseph is seated at the right hand of Pharaoh. Joseph is seated at the right hand of Pharaoh. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Joseph is given authority over all the land of Egypt. Jesus is given authority all authority in heaven and in earth. Joseph goes throughout all the land. We're told this twice. He goes throughout all the land. Jesus sends his apostles throughout all of the earth. Joseph feeds a starving world with bread and Jesus feeds a starving world with himself. So if we zoom in, we start here with these nightmares (laughs) That, that Pharaoh is having, we're told that there was a time span of two full years. So if two full years in the language there, it's like two full years of days. It's very, it indicates very exactness. 
If two full years have gone by from our previous passage, what day is it? Bingo, it's Pharaoh's birthday, or it's close to Pharaoh's birthday. And so on Pharaoh's birthday, we might say God is giving him gifts of nightmares. He's giving him these, it's kind of a funny way to put it, but God is speaking to Pharaoh. It really is a gift. And, but it is, it is startling to him. There's disturbing images. When Pharaoh recounts it to Joseph, um, it's, there's more elaboration than when the narrator, uh, narrator tells us. He says, these, these uh, cows were more gaunt. They were the ugliest things I've ever seen in Egypt. I've never seen anything like them before. And then they would eat the other cows, and you couldn't even tell that they had eaten anything. It gives us a little glimpse into the psychological state of Pharaoh. And we're told in the text that his spirit was troubled when he woke up in the morning. And the dreams are punctuated by him waking up every time. And so we see that these are quite disturbing dreams. We could call them uh, nightmares. They are unique in their horror and their imagery. So Pharaoh thinks, you know, maybe my wise men and magicians can interpret them. Uh, Gordon Wenham Gordon interprets these men as diviner priest. And I, I think that's a more accurate rendering. These men, that's their job is to interpret the oracles of the gods. They're in good with the gods, and their job is to divine dreams and oracles from the gods. And he's thinking, well, perhaps these men can help to calm my spirit and tell me what these dreams mean. But they can't. They're stumped. They don't know what they mean. And so Pharaoh is continued, uh, continually uh, troubled in his spirit. And if these men are failing him, these men are... If they're diviner priests, the representatives of the Egyptian gods, and they're failing him. So Pharaoh, last week we said he needed better wine and better bread because his cupbearer and his baker were failing him. Now his gods are failing him. They're not able to interpret reality for him or revelation for him anymore. Pharaoh needs new gods. He needs a new god. And so the cupbearer says, hey, I remember my faults this day. It's kind of an ambiguous phrase. Does it mean, it could mean that he is implicitly confessing that he sinned against Joseph for not telling Pharaoh. Could be that he's just recalling the sins that got him imprisoned in the first place. But anyway, he says, I know a guy who can interpret, but he's very specific in who it is. He, he says he's a Hebrew, he's young, and he was a slave He's a, he was the slave of the captain of the guard. So he's a foreigner. He's, he's a young man. He's somebody who you wouldn't think Pharaoh would bend Pharaoh's ear, that Pharaoh would pay attention to. But Pharaoh's desperate here. God has driven Pharaoh to this moment of desperation that he's willing to try anything at this point. John Calvin really, um, he, he sums it up well here uh, with this remark. He applies it to us. He says, we see in the person of a proud king as in a mirror. What can take place when people are forced to act out of necessity? People who live in a happy and prosperous circumstances will rarely condescend to listen to those who they think are true prophets, let alone to foreigners. So Pharaoh's obstinacy had to be broken. God had to break Pharaoh so that he might send for Joseph and accept him as a teacher. The same kind of preparation is also necessary 
even for the elect, because they never become docile until their pride is beaten down. So whenever, therefore, we are pitched into terrible troubles, which keep us in a state of anxiety, we must remember that God is using them to make us obey him. We see that Pharaoh was prepared to learn from Joseph. This was indeed a humble act so that when the opportunity to learn presents itself, we may not refuse it, but reverently honor the gifts of the spirit. I love that Calvin frames it this way. So Pharaoh calls Joseph. He gives him a shave. They change his clothes. He's made presentable. It's in haste. It's this quick uh, transformation. Uh, there may be something with, of course, the shaving, shaving of his beard, perhaps shaving of his head is a custom in Egypt. But we also might think about it in terms of a Nazarite. Uh, it's, also, it's also part of the Nazarite uh, uh, ritual that we see in the law. Where, where does shaving come in with the Nazarite vow? Anyone know? At the end of the, the vow. Exactly. When they fulfill their vow, their consecration to God, they shave everything and they offer it on the altar with all the rest of their sacrifices. They offer their hair as a sacrifice when they were consecrated to God for whatever the vow was that they were taking. Could be something here. Uh, but the important thing is that he is made presentable to Pharaoh and then Pharaoh tells him of the situation and says, these guys can't interpret the dreams. I hear you can interpret them. What do you got? No. Now, Joseph is in prison for two years and he doesn't know that on this day, people are going to rush into his cell and wrench him out and shave his head and give him clothes and put him in front of the most powerful person in Egypt. He has no idea that's going to happen on this day. At least we're not told. Two years go by and then all of a sudden he's right in front of Pharaoh, an anxious Pharaoh who's looking for answers. And Joseph is able to answer him. He's able to preach the word in season and out of season. As Paul tells uh, Timothy, another young man, another young prophet, be ready to preach the word in season and out of season. Joseph is wrenched out of his cell and he's able to do this. He's able to give an answer to uh, Pharaoh. Now, in this conversation with Pharaoh, Joseph is constantly giving glory to God. He's constantly mentioning God, attributing everything to God. He says, it's not me. <laughs> But it's God who will give the interpretation. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. The thing is established by God and God will make it come to pass. He is preaching of his God, Yahweh God. The term Yahweh isn't used. The term Elohim is used. But of course we know and they would know who his God is. Joseph uses this phrase. Uh, he says, God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace which is in contrast to his troubled spirit. The, the word there is uh, shalom, which shalom has idea of completeness. It has idea of salvation. Pharaoh has questions. What do these mean? And, and Joseph says, God will give you an answer of completeness. I think it's kind of twofold. He'll give you an exhaustive answer of what these dreams mean, but he will also give you peace. He will give you rest. He will give you salvation. I think that, that is, that's entailed in the kind of broadest lexical sense of shalom. I think that this is here. 
it's what's given. It's another gift that's given to Pharaoh. He's given an explanation of the dreams, but he's also given a savior, somebody who can uh, uh, stave off what God is warning him about. There's a couple of interesting things about um, these, uh, these other attributions of God. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Pharaoh's a non-believer, but he's getting revelations from God. He's hearing from God. So this is just an, an example of God speaking to, the, to a Gentile, to somebody outside of the covenant. Of course, there's typological aspects here. God's speaking to a Gentile, and then a Hebrew is sent to interpret what God is saying and to save him and his people. The double dreams mean that the thing is established by God, which is an interesting thing for Joseph to say, because Joseph's own double dreams have taken about 13 to 14 years to be fulfilled. They're just now coming to fruition. And he says, these are certainly going to happen, but they're going to quickly happen. And that 14 years um, that th this is now the fulfillment of Joseph's dream, we see also Isaac is born 14 years after Ishmael was born. So there, there's this gospel aspect uh, with that. Um, Jacob serves Laban for 14 years in the Exodus out after the 14th year. And Joseph is born in that 14th year as well. And then even in the dreams that Joseph has, there's 11 stars that are bowing down to him and the sun and the moon. So that would make Joseph the 14th celestial, celestial power there or the 14th figure in that dream. Joseph interprets the dream, but he goes further than what he's called to do. So he's brought before Pharaoh to interpret the dream. But beyond that, he says, and this is what you should do. He gives him this exhortation, appoint somebody to store up grain so that we can prepare for these, these years of famine that are coming. So he makes this transition. If we're thinking about it in terms that Calvin has uh, situated this, gifts of the spirit, Joseph has the gift of interpretation. But then he also switches to the gift of prophecy. This is what it means, but this is what you should do. We might see the directions inherent in the dream because the years of famine are eating up the years of plenty. So you might be able to even extract that kind of exhortation from the dream itself. God's not giving these dreams in a kind of flat determinism where it's like this is happening and there's nothing you can do about it. He's giving this in order to save him. It's a gift. The other, this is, this is not a model for economic activity, but it is worth noting that the exhortation involves a strong centralized government pr program, which, which is all, you might even describe it as martial law. There's kind of martial language. The military is in, involved here. Uh, when he says, uh, take a fifth of the, the grain, that's a translation decision. It could be divide up the land in fives, and commentators have associated the fives with military. So anyway, the point is, strong centralized governments are not inherently bad. And in extreme situations, sometimes they may be necessary. And in this situation, God used that as an instrument to even save uh, Egypt and the world. After Joseph finishes giving God's interpretation of his own word to Pharaoh, <coughs> exhorting him what he should do, everyone agrees. There's no pushback. 
everybody sees that this is good. What does it say? So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all, his, all of his servants. In a similar situation with Daniel, we see that Nebuchadnezzar thinks that the interpretations that Daniel gives is good, but the other, the other royal court members, they don't like that Daniel has so much favor with the king. There starts to get envy and they, they try to kill him. But not here. The, the, it says all of, the, all of his, what does it say? In the eyes of all of his servants. So I think there, there's, there's a, this picture of the Gentiles receiving the word of God. They're not bristling against it. They're not pushing against it. They're not angry with Joseph. They accept it. And so I think we, we're seeing, we could, I think, reasonably state that there's a conversion of Pharaoh here and not just Pharaoh, but we might even say all of Egypt, certainly the royal court. Now, God deals with unbelie unbelieving rulers and nations in two ways. One way is to destroy them and deliver his people. The other way is to convert them and make them his people. And that's what I think we're seeing here. Later on, we'll see that God destroys Pharaoh and many of the Egyptians and delivers his people. But here, I think he's... Uh, converting them and making them his people. What does Pharaoh say to his servants? He says, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God? Some translations will try to downplay this. They'll try to say in whom there is a divine spirit. They try to change the language to make it still pagan, non-believing language. But the words there the spirit, the Ruach of Elohim, is the same language of Genesis 1, when the spirit of God hovered over the waters, in whom the spirit of God is in. So I think that's another thing of God recognizing what's happening with Joseph. And then Pharaoh confesses that it is God who has shown these things to Joseph. And that since God has, has shown these things to Joseph, Joseph is the one qualified to be the, the vizier of Egypt, the second in command. Later on, um, we'll also see that Pharaoh, he receives a blessing from Jacob, two blessings from Jacob. This is uh, also another kind of indicator of his conversion. He, he wants to receive a blessing from Joseph's father. We also see that Joseph has become a father to Pharaoh. Okay, if Pharaoh is Joseph's son, um, who, who, is, who is Joseph's father? Abraham. Who is Abraham's God? Yahweh. And so I think that there's another, there's another aspect there. Uh, you know, conversions are not always nice and clean. We, we want the sinner's prayer. We want immediate kind of weeping and contrition. Of course, these things are good. Uh, contrition and, and things like this. Um, but even in the conversion of the nations, when Jesus came, it was messy. It was a dicey affair. It was slow. It was, it was Aryan tribes who took a long time for them to become Catholics and, you know, things like this. Forced mass conversions, that kind of thing. So it might not be as clean as we'd like it, but I think that there is conversion happening here. Okay. So, uh, Pharaoh makes Joseph his, his vizier, and we have documents, we have plenty of ancient Egyptian documents that show that there was a second in command uh, over Egypt who was in charge of everything except Pharaoh, and he was, he was called the vizier of, of Egypt. 
And that's likely what, uh, what Joseph is um, here. Again, I think that the, it's worth thinking about both Joseph in his cell and Pharaoh in his palace that morning. Joseph probably didn't wake up thinking, Pharaoh's going to make me the most powerful man in Egypt today. Pharaoh probably didn't wake up thinking, I'm going to make a Hebrew slave the most powerful man in Egypt. And so it shows that God can act swiftly and immediately in, in ways that we can't even fathom. <clears throat> Pharaoh says, you shall be over my house and all my people shall uh, be ruled according to your word. The word there uh, or the phrase be ruled according to your word has the word kiss in it. Uh, they, my, the people will kiss you. Um, it likely has this idea of saluting, uh, which has the idea of uh, giving honor and submission. It could be they kiss the ground. It also could be they will kiss your mouth. The people will kiss your mouth or the people will kiss each other. In any case, the word kiss is in here and it's associated with Joseph's rule. Now, what other area in scripture might we associate this with? Amen. Psalm 2. Kings of the earth, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. I think that there's, uh, at least this came to mind when I had, I had read that. So um, we already talked about the fives. Uh, Pharaoh gives uh, these multiple symbols of authority. We've already gone over this with Judah. He gives him his signet ring, which is like his credit cards or a signature. He can act in the authority of Pharaoh. He gives him a golden chain, which represents authority. And he gives him these fine linen clothes. And I think the... So if we've seen, uh, if we've seen Joseph act as a prophet in interpreting and exhorting Pharaoh what to do, what we're seeing with Joseph in Pharaoh investing him with authority um, is seeing him as a priest and a king. Uh, these things represent authority and power and the linens particularly. And then even the ornament, the kind of aesthetic ornamentation of a golden uh, uh, chain has, I think, particularly the linens. The priest of Israel would wear linen fabric when they ministered in the tabernacle in the temple. It helped from sweating. Same thing with the Egyptians. They would wear it to prevent sweating. It was almost translucent. And so we see that he's dressed like a a priest king. So we have prophet, priest, and king here with uh, Pharaoh. The ring and the golden chain, and then he gives him this, uh, this ride in a, in a chariot. And everybody, he drives him out through Egypt, and everybody bows down before him. And um, there is actually, a, there's a tomb of uh, an Egyptian named Tutu. And in it, there's paintings on the wall and it shows Pharaoh gifting a man with a golden chain. And then in the next uh, panel on the wall, he's shown in a chariot with people bowing down. We have this very thing recorded for us in uh, not only kind of archaeological digs, but you can go into any museum and see these war chariots and uh, these golden chains and these signets and things like this. They are, uh, they are everywhere in uh, museums. We still have the remnants of them uh, today. 
Uh, Pharaoh, he renames Joseph, and we don't really know what it means. There's a lot of different uh, uh, suggestions. Mo modern commentators will uh, say that it means God speaks and he lives. Uh, Josephus and the Jews generally thought it meant revealer of hidden things. Uh, Jerome translated it as uh, savior of the world. But we don't know. Of course, all those things are true. But in what, when somebody names something, as we've gone through Genesis, what does that indicate? If you name something, what, is that, what, what does this signify? One of the things is that you have authority over it. Exactly. Exactly. Authority. Dominion. Pharaoh still has authority over Joseph. And when you name something, you make it your own. Not in a domination kind of way, but in a dominion kind of way. Pharaoh gives him a wife. He's assimilating him into the royal family. He gives him a wife, uh, Asenat, which means uh, belonging to the goddess of Net. And Net was actually this creator goddess. She was the, she was the goddess, she was the mother of uh, Ra or Re which is the, the sun god there in Egypt. So it's a very, it's a very high, uh, it's one of their higher gods. Uh, and then she's the daughter of uh, Potiphera, which sounds very similar to Potiphar, but uh, very, very almost certain not the same man uh, as he was a priest in uh, On, which is later renamed as Heliopo Heliopolis by the Greeks. And then we see this in Jeremiah when he talks about the same city. This was the center of sun worship. Heliopolis means sun city. And this was, this, this was part of their worship, sun worship. And uh, he's marrying into this family, uh, which certain, you know, certain people would take this to be some kind of compromise on Joseph's part. I don't think that that's the case. I think we see Joseph acting with integrity here in front of Pharaoh. This is the Joseph who he would have known what interfaith marriages did prior to the flood. He would have seen his own uncle and what his marriage to, Can to ungodly Canaanite women did to himself. And this is the man who resisted Potiphar's wife. It would certainly be a deviation of character, I think to see Joseph compromise here at this point. It's possible that he did, but I think that there's conversion even going on at the heart of what their religion is, um, or at least it anticipates this. Of course, we're, we, this, we can only speculate, but I think that that's more what's going on here. At the very least, I think we can see that this is uh, pointing to Christ coming in and uh, converting the highest points of worship among the pagans uh, after the advent after the incarnation. We're told that Joseph went out over all the land. We're told this twice. Um, who else has done this in, in Genesis? Something similar. Joshua. In Genesis. That's true. Talking about Jacob, like his journeys, walking across. Or... I, think that could, I think that could play into it. I'm thinking specifically about somebody who walked in the shape of a cross over all of Canaan. Uh, I, I'm kind of joking, but we're told that Abraham walked from the, from the northern end to the south and then from the east to the west. And what this is, is another demonstration of dominion. They're, you're putting the land under your feet. 
And I think that we see that here with, with Joseph. In addition to just the practicality of being a good ruler and seeing what's going on in the land, getting the, getting the actual uh, uh, landscape. Joseph is 30 years old when he becomes this prophet, priest, and king of Egypt. The priests, the Levites, when they became a priest, they were 30 years old. They entered the ministry at 30 years old. Uh, when David becomes king, both David and Saul become king at 30 years old. And Ezekiel is a prophet. He's called to be a prophet when he's 30 years old. Priest, king, prophet. We see these three offices manifested here with Joseph. And of course, they're manifested uh, with Christ, who also began his ministry at 30 years old. Okay, last section here. Joseph, we're told, Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting for it was immeasurable. What is this? What is this an allusion to? What do we think of? Abraham's children, the blessing of Abraham. It's going to you're going to have more children than the stars in the sky and the sand next to the seashore. You're not going to be able to count them. And Joseph is unable to count the grain that he's gathering in. And immediately after we're told about the children that he has. So Joseph has these 14 years of barrenness like his great grandfather. And then boom, Tons of grain. He has two children. One of them he names fruitful. He starts to become fruitful. And Manasseh means forgetfulness. He's, God has causing, he's caused him to forget the toil that he had in his father's house and his, his father's house. Generally, the toil he's had in the land of affliction, the land of his affliction. What might that be anticipating? This land of affliction. This is the land of Joseph's affliction. Joseph in his person experiences this slavery in Egypt. His descendants are going to experience the same thing, but they are, they too are going to gain rule and they're going to be saved out of this. Okay. So the years of plenty end and then the years of want to begin. The people are hungry. And so they cry out to Pharaoh for bread and what does Pharaoh say? He says, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. What is, there's, there's two places in the New Testament. I did the easy one. Mary says it to the... Bingo. <laughs> Bingo. Mary at Cana famously says, do whatever. He, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And then what's the other one? This one is not as, it's not as close, but it's similar. This in the transfiguration, the father. Yes, exactly. That's right. Bingo. The transfiguration, the father speaks and he says, this is my son. Listen to him. Hear him. Um, we're told that the famine was uh, over all the face of the earth and that. Uh, uh, well, we'll start with that one. The famine was over all the face of the earth. What is this? There's a string in, G in Genesis that this is picking up on. The flood, the flood, the flood was over the face. God had decided to destroy men from the face of the earth, but God's not destroying men here. He's saving them. And there's also a similar language here that I just picked up on just reading it again uh, this morning. Um, 
when God decides to start destroying men from the face of the earth, we are told that he opens the storehouses of heaven and the rain starts coming down. Joseph opens the storehouses of grain and the grain starts coming down and saves them. Instead of destroying, he is saving these men. There's another ark. This is the ark that Joseph has uh, built in Egypt. And so all the earth is coming to him uh, uh, for uh, their salvation. And thus we have in the time frame of Genesis, this preliminary fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. This is the apex of Genesis of when God says through your offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Faith in action culminate faith in action with his great grandfather culminates with his great grandson saving the world. And this, I mean, you think about it from a Hebrew perspective. It's like, well, this God kept his promises, but God had even more than that. This is a type of what was to come with Christ and his salvation of the world. All right, let's pray. Joseph foreshadows Christ, who also experienced humiliation before exaltation. As all were commanded to bow to Joseph, so too, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. This pattern, this principle is given to all of you as well. It is, not the, it is the lot of all Christians. So the charge is this from St. Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.